Welcome to Mind Frames, the sometimes half-assed but always wholehearted film conversation. I am one of your hosts, Michael Cockrell, delighted to be here with you. And with me, as always, is... Dave Canfield. Dave, uh, what movie are we talking about today? Uh, we are talking about a movie that is in wide, wide release. Uh, sorry. We are talking about a movie that is in wide, wide release. It is Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. This is the sequel to the 2018 Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And in it, Team Miles Morales, Spider-Man of this universe, must join with five spider-powered individuals from other dimensions to stop a threat for all realities. Sounds like a simple plot, but at two hours and 20 minutes, this is the longest American animated film ever and the plotting is multi-layered and the story character-driven. Fascinating. Is it the longest animated movie ever? It longer is. than Isle of Dogs? Longer than Fantastic Mr. Fox? Yes. Okay. Yes, a pretty amazing, a pretty amazing accomplishment, especially considering some of the technical stuff we're going to be talking about. So this movie is really birthed from the um comic and anime worlds you know this isn't a, a, a and it's the same true for the the first movie the first spider-man spider-man into the spider-verse right we're going yeah. across it now um you know that wasn't expected to be as big of a hit as it was right it turned out to be one of the best movies of the year and i think you could tr that's why you know the powerful hollywood more Hollywood movie types didn't get as involved and they're still not as involved. I mean, the cast is phenomenal and has tons of A-listers, but in terms of the directors and the writers, we're talking about um, people who have comic book, anime, animation backgrounds. Uh, let's talk about some of those people, Dave. Yeah, Joaquin Dos Santos, one of the directors. There are three directors and three writers. I was going to start with Joaquin. You start with who you want to start with. No, go ahead. So Joaquin, Joaquin Dos Santos is from that world. You know, I think uh, he has the credits that you would associate with someone who's heavily involved in animation. The thing that stuck out to me was he was an artist. Like some of these people are graphic designers or artists going back pretty far. Some of them really far back to things that... I mean, maybe not the 70s, but back into the 80s, at least. <laughs> um, so he was actually an artist on The Last Airbender, the original series from the 2000s, right? Uh, so I thought that was very interesting. I know you know a little bit about Kent Powers. He is probably the most uh, Hollywoody movie-connected person amongst the six. Well, he's a Pixar connection. So, you know, Kent Powers worked on Soul. Uh, and uh, I think that... Uh, um, you know that was a that was a, a very well reviewed movie. So it's 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 uh, really interesting to see these different worlds come together. You're going to talk about Justin K. Thompson. Yep, probably mostly known for this movie, the previous Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, but really, you know, before, prior to this, if these things never would have came together, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too, very beloved. He was. Uh, very heavily involved with that. He was the director of both of those films. Yeah, and as you mentioned, that goes back a little bit. I think Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs would have been in the early two thousands, um, uh, not so much in the uh, not so much in the eighties. 
Um, but you know, that's just the three directors. We also have three separate writers on this project. Um, and I think that's uh, in a way, this project really has a great script. Um, we'll start with Phil Lord. Phil Lord's known best for doing the Lego movie, um, Clone High, and of course, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, so, you know, adept at handling mul multiple characters in a really visually interesting environment. I feel like we've talked about um, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. I think they're kind of a team. They both worked on Clone High and the Lego movie. I feel like we've talked about them before, but I can't think of what project that would have been that we did but I, they they probably come up before and as far as my 80s people dave that's more in the production section less no, in the okay. writing directing <laughs> section which when, when we start to look at the uh head of our the art department uh that's where you get the real you know people probably even you know, happy birthday dave people certainly oh. older than you dave for sure who are still out happy there and birthday. It was on fun. the cutting edge um dave callahan he was on the original, not I would call it the original. It was only from two years ago. Spider-Man across Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Um, interesting enough, since then, he wrote for Chang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, which I did not see, but is a highly, uh, highly uh, considered a good film. It's a Marvel movie. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was happy to see that, and I'm really happy to see people. You know, Shang Chi did not do all that well, and I I love. I love, love, love that the writer of that, or one of the writers of that, is getting a chance to be part of this, you know, big, big, big thing. Um, because that's the kind of storytelling that we need uh, at this point to me. Uh, now, I guess it's time for us to talk about the cast. Uh, film has a really extensive cast. Um, we have uh, Shamik Moore comes back as uh, Miles Morales Spider-Man. Um, who else is in this movie, Mike? Uh, so, well, you know, you know, I love Oscar Isaac, right? I, he is in here. He is playing, uh, Spider-Man 2099, Miguel O'Hara, an alternate version of Spider-Man. Um, love him. And I think he nails this part. I love him in everything he's in. Andy Sandberg, it, yep. pretty, you know, we have a lot of alternate Spider-Mans in here. He plays one of the alternate Spider-Mans. Very, uh, very funny. Um, who else stood out for you? Oh, you know what? I didn't well, even know this. I didn't even know this until I, I'm now looking at IMDb and I'm realizing this, that Daniel Kalua, who you know uh, yeah, we yeah. love, yes. he's Hobby. He's Hobie. He's Hobie? Hobie Brown, that's Hobie. him. I'm Hobie Brown. He, I cannot believe that. Wow, I, I totally did not realize that while I was watching it. Yeah, of course, all of them are animated. I mean, that is a standout character from the film, this punk punk incarnation of Spider-Man. Uh, and I don't know if that's the first thing that you think of. When you think of Daniel Kaluuya, you don't necessarily think of, you know, punk. No, to me, Daniel Kaluuya is, is forever doing his American accent from... So he's forever doing his accent from Nope. But uh, <laughs> boy, he's... Uh, and also, yeah, he, he does a lot. You know, he plays Americans in a lot of films. But well, yeah. Haley I've never heard him do this accent before. He does it well. Haley Stanfield is also in this film. She plays uh, Spider uh, Spider Girl um, or Spider Woman. And uh, uh, Issa Rae is Jessica Drew. Um, Luna Loran Valles plays um, 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 plays 
Miguel Mo Miles Morales, sorry, um, mother uh, in this film. But my my standout, my absolute, I'm in love with this um, character is Jason Schwartzman plays uh, one of our villains in the film, or a character called Spot, and he is clearly having a blast getting to head that up. And he's a fantastic, uh, does a fantastic job. Who plays uh, Miles's father? That's a good question. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't see it listed here. Do you? Let me let me do a little googling here. Yeah, that seems sort of odd to me. Uncle Aaron is uh, played by uh, Mahershala Ali. Um, Mahershala Ali, yes, we beloved character. Uh, beloved actor, he's doing great as a as a, a voice actor, and um, not enough of him in this movie. Of course, he was more prevalent as the Prowler in the first movie, but he is in this one a little bit. Yeah, and there are a, you know, folks, there's a lot of characters in this movie. I mean, there is it's it's just uh, it, it's kind of amazing. Um, if if you look at just who did voices alone on this movie. Uh, it's bigger than some independent films. Rachel Rachel Dratch is in here, of course, play, oh. pretty much playing herself as a exaggerated yeah. version of herself <laughs> as a as a guidance counselor or the character she often plays of, as the board. Um, she's often cast as like a board uh, functionary. Yeah, very much the case here. Um, yeah, who plays his dad? I don't know. Maybe we better move on, man. Um, the voice sounds so familiar, but I can't think of who it is, and I'm not seeing it on the internet. So, yeah, an incredible cast. Lots of A-listers in there. Uh, lots of A-listers who also did non-lead roles that we didn't even mention. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of like cameo spotting in this film. Um, you know, but you, you may not notice that because of the visuals, which are also involve an enormous amount of uh, of kind of cameos from the history of Spider-Man. I'd just like to say that Oscar Isaac is continuing to be um, cast more and more as, you know, he's kind of, he's, you know, being good looking really does wonders for your career. So he can, he sometimes casts as like a romantic lead or uh, a charismatic lead, but here he's cast as like a stern authority figure, which I think he does very excellently very excellently in this film and as you know i'm very anticipating i love do i love dune he was a stern authority figure in dune and a little bit in star wars too if you really think about it but he was um, also a great father in dune i mean there's a softer side to that character but here we definitely get him stern authority the, figure i'm sticking with yeah. that he was fatherly and dave dare i say he's a little fatherly in this this one too Huh. Um, but uh, definitely leaning into the more authoritarian, stern side. But, you know, Spider-Man 2099 is, you know, his part in the movie is doesn't belong discussed in the in the non-spoiler section. But he's the leader of the spider, spider people, the spider persons <laughs> that are going between the dimensions to set things. So he's somewhat of a fatherly figure. Wouldn't you say he's kind of a fatherly figure for um, Spider-Girl? I think his relationship with... Uh, Miles is a little complicated, but he's, wouldn't you call him a fatherly figure for Spider-Girl? You know, Spider-Girl and Miles both have, like, distant relationships with their fathers that are deeply complicated by the fact that they are, um, they are superheroes uh, on the sly. 
and haven't been able to let their uh, let their families in on the secret. Um, uh, of course, and you know we won't get into the spoiler section, um, but uh, she she has um, her relationship with her dad gets more and more complicated uh, as time goes on. So is she entering this universe? Um, asking to be part of this band of people that go around trying to set the timeline right. I feel like you're really in spoiler territory, Dave. As a, well, as a father figure. I don't know if she's looking to him quite as a father figure, but I do think she's looking for family. Okay. Um, the production. Well, boy, a lot of people worked on this. It, you know, lots. You can go to the IDM, IMDB page, and there are lots of people. Over a thousand people. Uh, you said, Dave, you told me it's uh, the third largest animated movie per cast. Yeah, I... I no, I, it's the first. I was just trying to feed that to you, where no, you could correct me and be like, it's the first, Michael, but... Uh, you're, you're wigging me up, man. The, the, no, it's, it's uh, astonishing how many people worked on this movie. You know, there's a, like something like 150 voice actors on this film. And that's just the voice actors. Uh, you know, in the cast that doesn't count all the behind the scenes people. There were something like 140 animators, um, and you know, just uh, we'll talk about whether to stay all the way through the credits later. Um, but uh, uh, I would imagine it would take a long time to sit and sit through those credits. Uh, yeah, and you know, we mentioned old people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so who could head such a sprawling department well the the art director on this film is dean gordon who is like a veteran person going back probably to the 70s but um i just want to highlight that he drew he was an artist not not the art director of but he was an artist on aladdin and beauty and the beast to show you how long he's been in animation um th that would be the 90s early 90s disney versions of those so he was he was like I don't know if he was technically Imagineer, but he worked for Disney into the 80s and probably the 70s, too. Um, so he's been around. Uh, also notable, he another person, I, I don't know what their title was, honestly. Um, I didn't get the sense that they were deputy or assistant, but perhaps uh, kind of higher, higher up yeah, the... like higher up than that, like not as high as the art director, but also really important. Um, Ariz Khalid is on there, and I think the reason I wanted to talk about him was one because this is such a sprawling crew, production crew, uh, but also because he was the art director on Miss Marvel, oh, the wow. stream, the streaming show, which shares a lot of the um, themes and uh, aesthetic sensibilities of this film. So if you like this film a lot, or your child likes this film a lot, they are probably going to like miss marvel too so i thought i'd like i feel like he had i feel i felt his touch here and i definitely felt um the organizational skills and experience of dean gordon so they got this job done there are no flaws in the production of this whatsoever yeah it's pretty astonishing i think that uh it's it's like you said it almost feels like there was not a lot of interference in this film these guys knew 100% what they're doing, and they were left alone to do it. And uh, I don't know exactly how true that is. I'm sure there were a close eye was kept on everything. But um, this is a, um, 
you know, if this is what it takes to pull off a movie like this, it's well worth it, for my opinion. You know, we, we were going to have uh, the uh, the narrative and the, the linking of the narrative and the uh, visual elements as a theme, but we pulled that out. So we can say a little bit about that here in the um, spoiler sure. section, I guess. And I think, like, why is it so hard? Why is it so complicated? Uh, there are multiple different, like, every universe is represented by a different artistic style. Many of them paying homage to different types of styles that comic books have used in the past, right? Yeah. Um, not always. Some of them are totally just like totally different graphical art styles. Someone worked hard to seamlessly integrate those together. And I just don't mean putting them on the same page and showing them. They integrated them thematically and uh, into the plot. And so that's not easy. So like, what am I talking about? Hobby, Hobie. If you think about him, his graphic style, and I do you know the name of that style? I don't know, but let's call it like punk, like punk plaster, all right? Punk plaster art. Um, they had to integrate the character, the voice acting. They had to make that real and appear in a universe and create an introduction for it. And then they had to take that and set it up to next something totally different, set it up to real life Daniel Glover and make it actually feel like these two things can coexist in the same screen. Uh, not so easy. Not so easy. Um, like you could just Google, go to YouTube and Google like <laughs> bad CGI if you want to what, want to know what it looks like to put two different mediums together. In that case, yeah. real film and CGI. There's a, it's yeah, very but, easy to make mixed mediums look bad. If, you, if you've ever seen a punk zine with the line art, the drawing line art, you have some sort of idea of the chaotic really edgy kind of uh, a look that Hobie has and, uh, and the way he might move. Um, and that sort of anarchic kind of feeling ties directly in with not only the punk aesthetic, but what he brings to the narrative as a character. And the film makes choices like that all through it. And they're fantastic. They, it, it's, it's like I said, you know, 3D, if you've ever seen the movie Coraline, um, it's a great movie without 3D. But when you watch it with 3D, 3D is used to tell that story. It's not a gimmick. It's a tool. Uh, and it's used perfectly in, in that film. And it's the same thing here. They're doing something that uh, could be treated like a gimmick. And it's not a gimmick at all. It's it's central to the it's central to the look and feel uh, of of uh, and to the film and and what it has to say and and uh, who the characters are. Absolutely, plot visual elements are seamlessly integrated, and the actual animation itself is impeccable. All of the styles are done impeccably. Uh, it, it is yeah, I have no qualms whatsoever with the production. Well, to bring, and to bring it home, to, 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 to bring it home, I think that, you know, this film, Spider-Man um, uh, uh, Across the Spider-Verse, um, just hammers at the edges of the frame. It, it is so visually engrossing, and it's so visually... Um, you know, it's like going down a tunnel and, and that you can't that you have to just race down to to get out of. And and uh, they're definitely doing something visual that I think is akin to 3D. This movie is not in 3D, but it's worth having a little conversation about 
how tools like that do get used in cinema. And I'd love to do a whole episode someday on 3D and some of the theories behind it and the craziness of its history. But but here you just see artists at absolute peak, you know, talent. Um, and uh, and uh, I guess I guess at this point what we're getting into reviews, right? Okay, so here's my review of Spider-Man Across the Universe. I uh, This movie was supposed to make 80 or $90 million on its opening weekend. It destroyed that. They're progressive saying it's going to make $120 million. Um, and, you know, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, the audience that I was with had so much fun with this movie. If Spider-Man has ever been a part of your life, and Spider-Man for me is the 67 cartoon, the 77 TV series, and then the Sam Raimi movies, um, with a smattering of the comic books in there. But whether you're a comic book Spider-Man fan or a movie Spider-Man fan or a TV Spider-Man fan, you are going to stand up and cheer at this movie. It is so fun, and uh, it has the uh, gall to actually um, be poignant and um, very narratively interesting and to juggle a ton of characters really, really um, well. So I, I would give this, you know, absolutely uh, five out of five. This is a fantastic film. Thank you, Dave. Um, I don't give five out of five on first viewings, usually. Have I, I, you know, I break my rules all the time. I, I don't really, <laughs> but in general, it's hard for me to get five out of five. I'm much more um, fearful of a commitment than that. I don't, I wouldn't give this movie five out of five anyway. However, I think it's a very solid four stars and maybe it does have potential to go up there later. Like all of the elements are good. Um, everything comes together. You know, I kind of last a few years ago, I described Dune as like a technically perfect movie. I feel like that this is kind of a technically perfect movie too. all of the people. And it's no surprise given who was involved with the production, all of, all of the aspects come together perfectly. Well, I think the weakest aspect of it, and we've already talked about the animation styles, the timing, the music, um, the voice acting, those are all five-star perfect. The only thing that I think maybe um, leads me to say that I'd never go up to five stars or it's never going to be into my like list of must-see classics of all time would be how loaded it is with like in, in references and in-jokes and is a little self-referential. And that's very much part of the, mar of the uh, comic book of what it means to make a comic book movie these days. And how couldn't you, when it's a, such a character like Spider-Man who has like decades and decades of history. Um, but, you know, I think it leans pretty heavy on that for humor and lightness. Eh, that's not, that's not a huge qualm I have, but I think the plot is uh, regardless, um, the weakest part. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's two separate storylines of like, just like in every Spider-Man movie of Miles or Peter Parker trying to live their uh, neighborhood average everyday life and then be the Spider-Man as the second story. And I think those two plot, those two things come together pretty well here, but they don't come completely well together. And in fact, there wasn't enough time to end either of the plot lines. Not that, you know, I expect a complete and resolute ending, but there is, as we'll discuss in the, in the non-spoiler, and I don't know, I, 
how known this is, but there is really no ending. It's a part yeah. one of part two. So I, I think That's like they had so many threads. It's like part two of part three of three parts. Well, you know, the first movie ended and there was an ending and the, the oh, plot was resolved. This is the plot is not resolved at the end of this. So you know how you go to see Dune, which is also like I just brought it up. At the end of Dune, it's not the end of the saga, right? But there is an end to that part of the saga. And yeah, for me, this, this movie doesn't have an end to even the part of the saga. Um, well, I know that Spider-Man... The, the, Death Star, the Death Star was not blown up at the end of this movie. They're yeah. still flying towards the Death Star at the, at the end of this movie. So I don't know. I didn't have that expectation. But if that expectation's been set, more power to them. So four stars. What were you saying, Dave? Well, just uh, Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse, uh, which is uh, the third um, uh, film that is going to be done in this style and with these directors, uh, comes out supposedly on March 29th, 2024. Um, so, you know, it is going to be really interesting to see, you know what I'm interested in? Who's going to imitate this thing in between now and then? And uh, how is this going to affect even some of the direct-to-video stuff that that, uh, 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 that 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 comes across my desk? So it's going to be very interesting. One other movie, like it isn't as bad as Infinity War. Okay, when Infinity War ended the way it did, oh, which yeah. is also like on a cliffhanger like this, I was like, oh my gosh! I think I put like one star on. Um, uh, Letterbox? <laughs> Letterbox, yeah. Oh, Letterbox doesn't man. count. But, but I think I but first of all, there is a difference. Um this doesn't Ruta. end on, this doesn't end on the world ending, which is a pretty stupid way to end a mar a comic book movie that kids are going to. I stand by that. Thanos oh snapping his fingers at the end of your movie, spoiler alert. That is a that is not how you end a comic book movie. Don't let anybody tell you different. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's not as bad as that, but it all it does have that feel of like incompleteness. Um, so yeah. But I look very much forward to the second part of this movie. Yeah. Or, yeah. <laughs> I look forward to the completion of this plot. <laughs> um so with that, we are going to go into our spoiler section. Now, our spoiler section is for people who have seen the movie or who don't mind us divulging all of the major plot points. Yes, the spoiler section is for people who have A, either already seen the movie, or B, don't care that we are going to reveal all the major plot details. So consider yourself forewarned. You know, this is a really interesting film, Mike. Not, not only visually, but as we've kind of... Uh, talked about in our reviews um it has a very complex plot and a lot of characters um what um what what do you think was like the major theme of this film well um i think the major theme of this film is being an outsider being an immigrant not being accepted into the place that you're trying to get into but that's not necessarily the theme I want to talk about. I think that there's another aspect that's kind of like a, a subset of that that I that's think a, is incredibly interesting uh, in yeah. here. 
but no, I, I had to answer you honestly. I know you don't want to talk about that either, but but the main theme, and it parallels those two stories, like the Peter Parker story, the Miles Morales story, where you know it's classic Spider-Man. Spider-Man's trying to balance his life with um, being Spider-Man. That's what's kind of, I think, so appealing about this character. Um, like, I'm not a big Spider-Man fan, but the, what's great about Spider-Man is like he's down in the street fighting kind of lower-level villains and also trying to balance his life with Mary Jane and working at uh, the date, look, working at the Daily Bugle. Anyway, um, I think one interesting aspect of this is like Miles Morales has a very complicated identity, and I think that the intersectionality of his identity as Miles Morales as Spider Man. And Spider-Man in this movie gets a complicated identity too, is because he's introduced to the further introduced to the Spider-Verse and other characters who are complicated. So I think it's really a reflection of how intersectionality increasingly plays a part in American culture. I, I don't think we have very many um non-American viewers or listeners, but intersectionality is an increasingly important aspect of American culture. Like Americans' personal identities are becoming more and more multifaceted and complex. So let's talk about how this movie reflects that, Dave. Are you down? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you have Miles, you have Miles Morales, the character, right? He's he's both Puerto Rican uh, and black. He has a Puerto Rican mother and a black father. Um, and he is sort of in love with uh, Spider-Girl, who's uh, played by a white, um, a, a white girl. Uh, or is a white girl in the story? Um, then we, oh, uh, who who are some of the, who are some of the other characters that you felt were you know had these complicated identities? You know, there's a gay Spider-Man um, character in this. I can't remember the name of that particular character. Or they don't play him like a major major role here. There's a character from um, an, uh, a, a city called Mumbai Hatton that uh, uh, in a section of the film that plays kind of like a Bollywood uh, section and it's he's an, of Indian uh, descent. W- were there others, Mike? Well, there's Hobie. I, I think the entire, everyone in this movie has a complicated, multifaceted uh, identity. I mean, I know we all do, but I think in this movie, you'd be hard pressed to find a person who doesn't. Um, and I think that's what they're, that's what they're trying to say or that's what they're showing is that increasingly we all have many different aspects of our identity that overlap with each other. And it's always been that way to a certain extent, of course, but it's really amped up to the extremes as, you know, we're all confronting people from different cultures, people from different places. You throw in multi-universe, a multi-dimensional universe and that goes up. It, 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 we start with Miles and, you know, Miles is our hero and, um, he is a New Yorker, right? Let's talk about one identity, as is Peter Parker. But Miles is more of a modern New Yorker. He's yeah. a person who lives in Brooklyn. And in the first movie, we saw how he was trying to integrate into or, or integrate himself into a school for really smart people. He's really smart, just to like <laughs> summarize it. He's really smart. He knows a lot about physics. And he wants to go to this school where there aren't a lot of people like him income wise ethnic heritage wise um he's he in the first movie that's a big plot and that continues uh that's pretty much when we we meet rachel rachel drake's character she's the person trying to get him into 
the next level, right? Uh, probably a MIT or Stanford level right. program, right? Where he's right. he's also not going to be as represented. It's kind of out of his comfort zone. So Miles is representing for us. He's like going through that struggle of his complicated identity, part Puerto Rican, part you know he's both Puerto Rican and Black. He's a New Yorker, um, but he's also Spider Man. <laughs> Spider-Man, and then he gets thrown in the Spider-Verse. And part of going to the Spider-Verse is you have to figure out where you belong in a whole multiverse of Spider-Men that all come from different dimensions or all have their own unique, you know, kind of take on being Spider-Man. You know, it's kind of like the character in uh, uh, The Incredibles, the villain, who says, when everybody is special nobody is and that's kind of his vision for the world is to sort of degrade what it means to be a superhero um that's kind of what teenagers do to themselves i think you really struggle with your identity and stuff and so he gets thrust into that world and what is his place in the spider-verse it's a it's a major point of the film i think one interesting way that this movie handles it which is perhaps not uh true to life but maybe true to how life feels um i think this movie has a gen z sensibility it's kind of uh you know you know i love to take everything down to generations dave but you know this is a movie that's probably made for people that are gen z or younger or that they were in mind they certainly seem to have had a lot of of uh advice on how to make that believable even though we know it was actually made by adults and some adults pushing 70 or 80 um but in the way that the people interact with each other strikes me as very Gen Z. And since we're talking about intersectionality, the, the aspect that I thought that was really interesting is race is never overtly mentioned. You yeah. don't hear what we're saying white and black, but as I recall, race in those terms is not talked about. There's and one, there's yeah. one little reference to the mother being Puerto Rican that she reacts to. Um, she takes a kind of an offense of, of, at it's kind of a moment of humor in the film, um, but you're right. I don't I don't remember that at all. It's it's they achieve it by. They we don't need we don't need it. If you're if you are American, you know who's who and you know who's in what group because that is uh, you know demonstrated to us. But it's kind of a glimpse of I think how Gen Z or younger people are going to see the future or see the future now. Um, and it's artificial for us because we don't currently live in that world, but the relationship between Miles and Spider-Girl, Mary, her name is Mary Jane, I believe, <laughs> is one where it's like there's not as much the, – the, the tension between them is not race racial the way it would have been in 1968. The tension between them is more multifaceted because their identities are more multifaceted. Um, their identities are too complex to be – boil down to just racial components though that that is an element of it but their tensions we mainly see are the cultural differences and the income differences these things are just much more complicated than perhaps they would have been previously depicted i think that's a very brave choice and i think it's kind of a hope for the future to leave those out at least in the way the young people talk the older people are a little bit more um aware of it but they never overtly use the terms that we would probably normally use they just 
provide enough hints. But it seems like very hopeful to think that perhaps our younger generation will be uh, beyond that while still acknowledging that there's going to be tension. There's tension between Mary Jane and Miles because of the consequences of their multifaceted identity. But the kind of loosening of the baggage uh, is uh, is refreshing. Well, just just before yeah. we get into that, and I'm super excited for you to talk about this, um, but this idea of intersectionality in this film is every major character in this film brings that multifaceted um, identity into close contact and connection with another. And out of that is created a hybridity, sort of its own its own thing. And that is connecting to other peoples. And so you not only kind of have this theoretical idea of that we're all connected somehow and that what we do can, you know, have an effect on other people, but you have this idea that that is, this movie wrestles with whether or not that's a good thing and comes out, I think, very clearly on the side of that is a very good thing. That's kind of the whole point. Now, again, the movie doesn't have an ending. Maybe everybody dies in the next movie, so I don't know. But, <laughs> but yeah, that's 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 what I wanted to say about this. Is before we get to this character, now you're going to talk about this thing. Oh, I can't wait. The, uh, yeah, there's a, there's another character who really rocks the uh, the intersectionality and like the the dynamics that we're used to expecting. But since he doesn't come into the movie later, I do think it is. I, that's probably where you thought I was going, but I don't think I'm ready to. Uh, to un to open up that can yet, but the interesting thing mean? is, okay, well let's talk about Miguel O'Hara, Spider Man twenty ninety nine. So Spider Miles Morales, Spider Man, he's struggling with his identity. He's not getting accepted at school, but he's kind of not getting accepted from his parents as well, and that is because they don't know he has another identity that is beyond what they want him to be. They want him to be a good student. They want him to be. Uh, Puerto Rican. His mom wants him to speak Spanish. I mean, when I say Puerto Rican, basically what I mean is they want him to remain true to who he is, but they want him to grow beyond that and go out into the world and do big things more than he could do in Brooklyn. He actually tells them that, that I'm, I'm telling it wrong. Uh, they want him to stay in Brooklyn, right? But he wants to go beyond. He wants to go. There's this great scene in the movie and where he tells them that he wants to go and work at the cutting edge of physics but he can't do that in Brooklyn. Um, so he wants to go beyond what they're comfortable with, but they very much want him to remain true to his cultural identity. And they come around and they support him by the end of the movie. It's not a major plot point. I'm okay saying that. His mom and his dad, they come around and they become supportive of him. They get over their parental fears of like him being hurt out there because it is a dangerous world. He was not accepted just down the street at the fancy uh fancy uh non-hispanic school they don't say white but we'll say there are a lot of white kids there well but what about miguel what about spider-man 2099 you want to know about him so bad so you know I, I think your take on this is really interesting and i think half of the fan verse is people out there trying to guess what's the next movie what's the next storyline dude we all do it and and you should just do it. I don't be afraid. You're going to spoil. So, it I, I'm not convinced you're 100. percent Miles is constantly. You you know what I think I'm, is going to happen. So Miles is struggling not being accepted as like a person of color 
by a person who is from a, we presume a kind of middle income or lower middle income uh, economic status at his new school. So that plot, like we said, is paralleled with him being not accepted as Spider-Man. And when we originally, when the movie originally starts, he's comfortable as Spider-Man. He's very lackadaisical at taking down the original version of Spot that we see. But when he gets thrown into the Spider-Verse, he he realizes I'm actually not very good at being Spider-Man. I might be able to handle Brooklyn being Brooklyn Spider-Man, but there's a whole universe out there that I know nothing about. And that's where we meet the head of the multi-dimensional spider police. He is a uh, beloved character. I think he's beloved. Um, it is Miguel O'Hara, who is Spider-Man 2099, an alternate version of Spider-Man. So what do we learn? Well, we learn, and this background I think is necessary, is that we're all connected through the Spider-Verse. All of the Spider-Men especially, and the Spider-Women, and the Spider-Girls, and the Spider-People are connected through the Spider-Verse. And they share a series of common life events. Spoiler alert, Miles Morales is not one of those. He is an interloper. He should not have gotten in. The spider that bit him was from an alternate universe. He is an, he is an undocumented immigrant, if you will, of um, being a Spider-Man. Please don't send your... I know Puerto Rico is part of the United States and he's Puerto Rican. What I'm saying is he is an unofficial, not part of the original plan Spider-Man. But he's there... He's got the spider outfit and the powers. And his being accepted and being welcomed is not, he is not accepted and welcomed by Miguel O'Hara, who is the leader of the spider police. He wants all of these spider tales to go by a standard script because he believes that the universe will that like the universe will collapse if Spider-Man doesn't get his powers from being bit by a spider, if Spider-Man doesn't have a traumatic event where a police captain gets killed. If these canonical spider events don't occur, he thinks the world's going to end, and he has a personal story that he backs that up with. The thing about Miguel O'Hara and what makes him a great villain, besides Oscar Isaac's just natural charisma and stern authoritarian uh ability to portray us he's not actually that way in real life people he is so much fun and he loves practical jokes but he is able to portray a stern stern authoritarian character um well and he brings that to miguel o'hara he is judgmental of miles he he sees him as an interloper he is the leader of the group of spider-men that think that it is wrong that miles has become a spider-man through channels that are generally generally considered to be not the official channels not the right way you didn't you're not supposed to be here miles is now getting that and what i think what i love about making spider-man 2099 the villain um if he is a villain the spot is a villain too but let's say spider-man 2099 is the villain which is kind of a spoiler there too he is he is latino and he is a person that you might assume to be a natural ally like going back to those surface readings of like what i say 19 like kind of calling it 1968 surface reading you think oh he's latino he's going to be my ally uh his name's miguel he's a spider-man we share so much common identity he should be a natural ally of mine and you know when we see miles first come up to him 
he tries to relate to him on that level. He says, I speak Spanish too. Um, of course, Miguel O'Hara is completely brushing him off. <laughs> he, he's already made his judgment against him. So we see Miles like trying to relate to him through those common shared identities, like one identity being Spider-Man, another identity being Latino and speaking Spanish, or at least speaking Spanish, um, which is what Miles actually tries to do. Um, so I think that creates a very interesting villain. Uh, that that villain is a person who their 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 hatred of Miles is at, on one hand so wrong, like we know why they're we we know that it's wrong that they're trying to kick Miles out. It parallels Miles's story as an outsider, as kind of a um, underrepresented person in these other spaces. Yet at the same time, it 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 acknowledges the complexity of other people's identities who are using Miguel O'Hara as a stand-in. So I think that this is like the way for me, this is one of the aspects of the film for me that really shows that the people who made this film understand that increasingly today, Americans are have very complicated and multifaceted identities. And whether you speak Spanish or whether you're both Spider-Men, uh, counts for less and less. It's still very important, but you know, there's a lot of complications and blurring of lines, and um, we're just all becoming increasingly complicated as cultures collide. People marry people from different cultural backgrounds. We learn different languages. We move to different neighborhoods. You know, our kids speak different languages than we do. Um, you know, well, I. Yeah, yeah, I could go on with that, but we were it's a clash of cultures here, and I think that this movie really grapples with and doesn't run away from the complexities. It's so well, easy me... to have a movie, Dave, where you just re rehash stereotypes. They don't do this at all. All of the characters have very thought yeah. out backgrounds. I'll stop ranting. No, you're great. I mean, I, like I said, I was I was waiting for you to do that, and you did a you did a fantastic job. And, and, and in like, one way, you know, what's also interesting is Spider-Man twenty nine ninety nine is a hero. So it's like we meet this person, and we're thinking like maybe if we're in Miles's head, we're thinking he should be my ally, and he's a hero, and he's a Spider Man, and then he becomes a villain, and it's it's kind of all the more heartbreaking when let me one talk of talk about that. Yeah. Let me talk about that a little bit because you touched on it a tiny bit, and it's this idea of the culture wars. And the culture wars are about people who want to control the narrative. And we know that the narrative of the culture wars in this country amongst that group of people um, is white and it's evangelical and it's male dominated. And it's, a, you know, really about dominating types of, you know, of, of uh, societies that dominate their citizens. Um, and, I think that the interesting thing about the Miguel O'Hara character to me is as he becomes more rigid, as he refuses to look deeper into what's going on into the multiverse, he, he becomes um, the very thing that he's fighting against. He becomes the agent of chaos. Uh, and, and that to me is, is not only really, um, good storytelling it's it's also says a lot about authoritarianism and how it functions and the idea that you know everybody's a hero in their own story right but 
you know, in this, in this, the good that he wants to do, um, uh, turns out n not to be so good. And, um, and probably the last thing I would say about it is, again, y you have this sense of, of, you know, him, a man, a mission, individualism, I'm out, I'm going to do this and follow me versus the gathering together of community that we see Miles and uh, Spider-Girl uh, uh, engage in near the end of the movie. And I, I think that this business, again, of hybrid intersectionalities, where we, we not only see each other, but we celebrate each other. And we move together towards the world that, that we want to build. Um, is, is, you know, is just, it's just timely and it's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful statement. I can't wait for the next movie to see how they carry this through. Hmm. Hmm. So, uh, I was talking about complicated identities, Dave. You were. I was talking about, I was talking about Miguel O'Hara. And uh, you said that, um, I forget what you said, but the people pushing this are white evangelicals. And I would say one of the great things about this film is, it. I'm not suggesting that you're, you reduced complicated social situations down to something simpler, but I would say that one of the great things about this film is that it embraces the complications. We yeah. have a black cop. We have a a white girl who stands up for people of color. Yeah. We have a black Spider-Man. And we have a Latino man who is fighting to oppress. And I think that, like, I'm not denying that a large segment of problems come from uh, white, white evangelicals. I'm not denying that that group shows and a way, lot in, in statistics but i'm just saying i, I love the way the movie shakes up the categories no i, th I think it do totally does shape up the categories and in no way am i saying all evangelicals at all i'm not saying that at all i know lots of progressive evangelicals um but those aren't the people you know who broke into the capital and who you know uh, are part of this thing we now are starting to call christian nationalism and I think this idea that we have to protect the status quo um, versus imagining a better world is is something that this film really delves into. Um, and that's what I'm going to be interested to see where it goes. Uh, and hopefully, you know, people will be along for that ride, no matter what their religion or their, their ethnicity or their sexual identity or whatever. Um, that, that, that's, that's the, that's the hope. I guess what I'm just trying to say is that the truth is, is it, it, while I acknowledge like there's like a lot of truth to what you say, but sometimes it's comforting to reduce our complicated reality back down to like a, 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 a simple formula. And that, by the way, the news media and everyone does this, it, they are so invested in that because it's hard to write a complicated story and it's easy to write a simple story. Um, but you mentioned breaking into the Capitol. You know, it was it was with great amusement that I watched how, sh you know, as a, as a, you know, as a sickness that I have, I kind of like 
um, follow the news and like uh, too way too closely. But one of the things that I thought was amusing was how sh- surprised people were that the Proud Boys leader was a person of color or a person of uh, you know mixed race ancestry with a with a Spanish name with a name that you know with a Spanish language name. I, I think his name is like Enrique Tarrio. Uh, Google's telling me I'm correct. So I, I like how that that this movie, and that's going to be increasingly the case going forward. I think. I and I see what you're saying, and I think, yeah, yeah no, I get, I get it, I, I get it. I think I missed it before. It's a, it's a nuance thing. Right. Yeah. So I, I think that this this movie is really good at playing how complicated and messy our modern America is, how intersectional we are. And um, it still tells those definitive truths of right and wrong, but um, it allows you to see how complicated and messy. And of course, you, when you're in New York, uh, you're, you're going to be aware of those things. If you, if you, you know, New Yorkers are aware of it city where more languages are spoken than any other city in the world, even more than Mumbai. Maybe how many they speak in Mumbai and Baton? Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I think that that's an air, a very interesting aspect of this movie that I enjoyed. And um, I hope to see that a, a path forward. Um, like I, I, I hope to see a resolution yeah. to it along those lines. The first movie did it great. It was much more straightforward. Like I'm an outsider breaking in. This this movie can continue to that, but you know, the, it's it's fun to see, um, you know, those categories shake up a little bit, and I think it's healthy for us to see that. Miles assuming, you know, Miles assuming that other Spider Men are going to support him, and then finding out that they have their own biases and hatreds and assumptions. Um, is kind of like I think a, a heartbreaking lesson that lots of people learn. Well, and, and you know, I had to bring this up. There was no way I was not going to bring this up. There is one glaring flaw in this movie, and that was, and I kept my eyes peeled. Spider Ham does not make an appearance in this movie. There is no Spider Pig in the movie. Highlight of the first film, but they do have a Spider Cat. I will admit that the spider cat is great, but now you got to make me a spider cat, spider ham, like short, and you got to uh, you got to start to flesh out that character for me because um, I don't know. I'm more of a pig guy than a cat guy. Is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, that might be the only spider creature to uh, not um, uh, not uh, not be featured. Oh my gosh, every freaking Spider Man was in here. Which is really fun for people who love Spider-Man. I mean, I'm not one, but I mean, I appreciate that it was fun for them. Well, that was a very, uh, you know, I don't know if we did that subject justice, but we attempted to. Uh, Yeah, I think we did okay. And who knew that Spider-Man would be the character to bring this out of us? You know, you see more and more movies like this, um, but you do still get the green, you you do still get Green Book. I know we love to rip on that movie. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's unfair because it's actually set in the past, but you do get. Um, I mean, last you, year, yeah, everything, everywhere, all at once, swept, and it's a very multifaceted, nuanced film. Um, that also happens to have everything in it and everyone in it, and the kitchen sink and then some. Um, 
And yeah, I, I'm with you. I think we are seeing films that attempt to do more and more and more within the context of their narrative. And, uh, you know, this movie flew by for me. It was two hours and two hours and uh, 40 minutes. And it 20 was minutes. 20 minutes. And I think I, the reason I, why it's hard to do a movie like that is, uh, you know, when you make a movie for Gen Z people, they they know that's going on, right? They know that identities are merging, clashing, changing, that people are increasingly intersectional, that the intersectional element of people's identities is increasingly highlighted. That's a big part of the education system we have and a big part of that culture, that youth culture. When the older you get, the farther from that you get to the point of when you get to movies that are made for old people, just turn on Lifetime. It's, yeah, you know, they're not so racist as they used to be. You know, yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying that that ultimately leads to racism every time, but the categories are much more fixed, and the categories are much more entrenched in like a past understanding of identity. So I think you kind of have to make if you really want to dig into that, and you don't want to appeal to people who are older than that, much older. I mean, like like I said, you could appeal to people across the board, but you get it gets harder and harder the farther along you go. Um. So it's like it's like if you ever meet a really old, I'm not. I, it's not always about age either. I don't mean to stereotype people's age, but like sometimes when you meet someone and they're like so clueless to how complicated people's identities, like they don't realize there are black Hispanics. Like if you meet someone who thinks yeah. you can't be Hispanic and black at the same time, and like you try to explain to them, uh, uh, just like a small element of that, they're like that that category doesn't even exist in their head. So well, Miles Morales is kind of an example of that. So. You might get, if you tried to make this appeal to a broader audience, people who are asking, "Is he is he black or is he Hispanic? Why isn't he Peter Parker?" You know, it, it, you start to run into things like that. So you're like kind of freed up by embracing that with Gen Z. But you're right, everything everywhere all at once. They really featured complicated identities of like the characters in that and how they're kind of like being pulled in different directions. The grandfather kind of representing the more chi traditional Chinese way. The right. daughter experimenting with different types of identities and finding out who she is, but yeah, it's it's you know I think there's a lot of freedom in making a a a, a movie for younger people or at least targeted at younger people, and that you can really dig into what's going on now because that's the world that they that their formative years are now, so people often look back to their formative years, Dave, to think about like where they're at and who they are, thus the term formative formative. <laughs> Right, well, but I mean, the kids today, what's going on right now is their is their formative, is their formative self. Well, and in a way, for me, you know, th this is part of carrying on the fight for people to be seen and for people to be heard, um, and for people to be again celebrated rather than just um, tolerated. And you know, you think you think you know you couldn't show this movie in a classroom in Florida, probably because somebody would complain about it. And it, it, it's, that's crazy. When you watch this movie, there's nothing in it that should upset anyone in any real way. Um, it I would hope you could show out. this in, I would hope that you could show this in. So complicated movie, complicated discussion of uh, identity, well worth a, um, 
well worth a, a, a watch. And I recommend you go see it in the theater. Boy, we had great projection at our show. Yeah. Uh, you know, I haven't been down to AMC River East in a while, Dave, and they have some great protect, projection down there, which is unusual for AMC. I mean, I love AMC, as you all know, but they don't, the quality varies. <coughs> yeah, that's really the truth. I mean, I think if you want the great projection in Chicago, we've seen uh, the Alamo, we've seen the Draft House, um, and uh, um, I haven't been uh, to some of the other theater chains or, or single, you know, like independent theaters in a while. But, uh, man, you get spoiled. You know, um, I'm not going to name any names right here, but the I think the gold standard in Chicago for projection is the music box. Of course, they have trained, really well-trained projectionists, including ones with like 35 and 70 millimeters, specifically trained for those. Um, yeah, they always give a great projection. Uh, I was very impressed by what we saw at AMC, actually. There is one independent movie house dave i have had very bad projection experiences with i am not going to name the names what you mean <laughs> but i want to say that it's always corporate bad uh independent good alamo is is great it's not alamo i've no alamo's i'm bad. i'm going to alamo more and more dave um yeah it's 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 intimate it's it's really fun um and the projection and the sound is great um depending on our schedule if we don't have to go to the press screening and we can instead go to alamo and i have nachos and drink a beer for a movie like bo is afraid where you're sitting there for three hours <laughs> that is kind of my preference and there's like i know we've talked about this date but you know what i love about alamo and some people might hate it for some movies like bo is afraid i take copious notes and Alamo, you know, has that little light where you're supposed to write your drink order and like yeah. put it up. And, yeah. and I use that little light to highlight my notebook when I write my notes. Whereas in other theaters, if it's really dark, which is probably the preferred experience of most people, this is kind of a niche need. But um, other people, like other movie theaters, I have to wait until there's like a bright scene. Um, it's like I remember watching uh, Ari Aster's earlier film. Um, Midsummer, you know, her Midsummer, and her, but mainly Hereditary, which has a lot of light scenes, like they, or it has. I'm sorry, it has a lot oh. of dark scenes where there are scary things happening, and then he does the classic switch to daytime, especially because he's like highlighting how the scene in the house are similar to the little figurines. Anyway, there's a lot of switches where it goes from dark to light, and I remember frantically lighting, writing as soon as those scenes uh, changed over for that film. So, what movies did? Spider-Man uh, oh. Across the Spider-Verse reminds you of. You know, it reminded me of other really groundbreaking animated films. Um, in particular, there's a movie that doesn't get talked about as much these days, but I think is still really interesting and visually uh, spectacular, and that's Waking Life. And another movie uh, also, also by Richard Linklater um, that Keanu Reeves uh, and Winona Ryder were in it was based on a Philip K. Dick, um, a story called A Scanner Darkly. And in a, in a really weird way, the animation styles, again, really helped tell those stories and put you into the mind of those characters. Here, this movie reminded me of a hundred things. I mean, you know, as well, because it was so diverse in its stylistic approach and 
you know, as far as a singular event, it's there's really nothing else like it except the first part, Spider Spider Verse movie. Yeah, it is very unique. You know, I we were just mentioning it, but I I do think of um, I did think a little bit of everything everywhere all at once, and especially for the way it tackles like younger people's identities, um, and how they kind of might di differ from us older folks way of thinking. I think that these two movies both do that well. I just in like it has such excellent animation, um, and when I think of excellent animation, you've you, you, I know you. I've probably ranted to you before, Dave. And um, as far as I know, there's not a lot of overlap between this production crew and the production crew of the DC Universe animated standalones. I love DC Universe's uh, standalones, of which I'm going to rattle off some of the best ones, in my opinion. They are, to me, the best comic book animations out there. DC, it's so tragic. DC struggles with... Um, their universe their cinematic universe though i think they get a bad rap but their animated universe is so incredible you know it started off with superman doomsday that's a classic uh you got to watch that dave i think when we did we do batman versus superman but the dark knight returns is animated you know we've talked about the dark knight returns many times um it they have an excellent animated version of that that's probably my highest recommend um injustice you know if you like bad superman so i think like yeah you gotta if you like this if you like alternate versions of your favorite characters there's a lot of fodder there in the dc animated universe of course they're dc but if you want to see superman go crazy or batman be old and get into a fight with superman you if you like those like alternate stories and excellent storytelling and animation check out the DC universe. There is other good animated stuff out there um, in the comic book world. Yep. Well, we do have another episode coming up. What is that episode going to be? So look, I am not turning, this is not turning into another comic book pot podcast all right no, not absolutely do not worry folks all right we are not turning into a comic book podcast however when we evaluated things that looked interesting to us and when we evaluated things coming out along a timeline that we might potentially get invited to anyway when we evaluated all of those factors we saw we're actually the most interested in the flash um for a variety yeah for a variety of reasons so we are we have done tons and tons of comic book movies, but look, we're not chasing after those sweet sweet comic book listeners. We'll pro we got to do something French before the end of this year. We got to do something about a a, a a gay French couple that go on vacation to Sicily. You know that seems to be like what we used to do all the time, and then they like find you know that used to be a, interpersonal dramas of uh, you know people um, exploring you know uh, people trying out. Um, uh, I'm forgetting how to speak French right now. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's, it's worth we'll, noting. We'll get back to French movies. I, I, to me, the movie that, like the quintessential uh, mind frames film, Dave, is in what I'm trying to kind of reference here is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We'll get back to stuff like Portrait of a Lady on Fire and High Life. Absolutely. Absolutely. But when we looked at our movies coming out, um, there's something I we just have a feeling about the Flash, and we want to talk about it. <laughs> 
Yeah. So on the one hand, there are people out there saying that this is one of the greatest superhero movies ever made. I've seen that uh, several times from several different Spider-Man and the Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse or, or the Flash? The Flash. Um, I keep hearing it about the Flash. But uh, we all know that uh, the star Ezra Miller has, um, you know, been uh, getting some therapy. He was had some arrests uh, that took place and some very bad behavior that, uh, um, you know, really complicated the release of this film and his own future within that, the you know, the, this franchise. Um, there are people who are saying they're not even going to go see this movie um, who are, you know, getting on that train. So caught between two worlds. Um, it'll be really interesting to see it and then try to think for ourselves. I don't know. Maybe we'll have a little bit of a conversation about separating art from the people who make the art. Um, Boy, Dave, that's a lot, but we can try it. That's a hard And, you know, it's like it it doesn't seem like everyone's held up to the same standard. Um, No. Whatever. I'll stop. I'll stop talking. But, you know, we know people who are incredibly talented. They make one mistake and they're done. And sometimes that's justified, depending on what that one mistake was. Don't get me wrong. But then you see people who are continual fuck-ups, often have family connections, often are white, often are connected to Hollywood in other ways, and they are just given so many many chances. So it's like there's like a bitterness in that debate that we can try to talk about too. (laughs) Yeah, And and there's also the question about the place that we give those people in our own minds and in, 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 in the culture that we live in, you know, uh, it's too bad. Tar is not coming out right now. Cause tar is the perfect oh, movie man. that I think encapsulates that. And we never answered the question with tar. Is there life after being canceled? You know, we kind of had different answers to that question. Tar mm-hmm. provides you with an answer, but that answer is open to interpretation. <laughs> yeah. And it'll be really interesting as this comes out to read reviews, uh, as, as the flash comes out, to read reviews and whatnot, we will be uh, putting our episode out on June 25th. Uh, needless to say, we're uh, it'll we'll be, be in France then, Dave. I know it's crazy, right. isn't it? Yeah, hard to hard to believe. Maybe we'll be watching Asteroid City in France. Yes, for those of you who don't know, Mike and I have a pretty tight friends group, and uh, we uh, Mike has finally talked me off the couch and onto a plane. We are headed to France, uh, and uh, it's going to be my first time um, on uh, uh, out over the ocean and onto another continent. So I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, we and we may even see a movie while we're out there. And uh, uh, I don't know if we'll record an episode, but uh, um, we are actually talking about seeing uh, seeing a movie out there. So we'll have to see. All right. Well, thank you. For listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>